Cuisine Bites with Kelly Brett. Everything you'll ever need to know about food. Great to have you with me for the first in our four-part series, Kitchen Conversations, brought to you by Gaganel. And there's a new show on three. It airs at 5.30 on Saturdays and it's called A New Zealand Food Story. It follows multiple award-winning chef Ben Bailey as he works towards opening his new restaurant Ahi with an aim to encapsulate the essence of New Zealand. So there's really no better time than now to take a look at how Ben has become one of our highly respected New Zealand chefs with a career that has seen some spectacular highs and lows. And it, well, it certainly ain't over yet. Ben has been extremely generous in the telling of his story and it concludes with a question that many hospitality professionals are asking themselves right this minute. I mean, at the end of the day, we're providing an experience for our customers, you know. We can't cut certain things. We can't have less stuff. We can't have crap ingredients. Like, we, we're human beings serving human beings. And we're selling an experience. How do we still keep the same experience for our customers but take away the crap? A very frank and personal convo with Ben Bailey that took place both pre- and post-COVID restrictions coming up on Cuisine Bites. But first... A few little crispy bits for you. Crispy. Fantastic to hear that Visa Wellington on a Plate will be with us again this year after having to postpone their original August schedule. Festival Director Sarah Meikle explains. We're really thrilled to be able to deliver Visa Wellington on a Plate rescheduled for October this year. The festival's a really important part of the Wellington regional hospitality and restaurant scene along with lots and lots of regional producers and suppliers. It's also a really key moment on the calendar for all our food and drink enthusiasts right around New Zealand. Um, this year we will be bringing as much of the festival as we can, maybe with a few small changes, but people can still look forward to enjoying Dine Wellington, Cocktail Wellington, festival favourite Burt Garage Project presents Burger Wellington, of course, and all of this served up alongside a really exciting festival events program, probably with more of a New Zealand and local offering, which we're really excited about. You know, Visa Wellington on a Plate is really more than just a typical food festival. It's really a chance for people to get to know the people and the personalities and the places behind the food that they love. It's so good to know this important festival will continue and it sounds like the perfect excuse to me to invest in a new pair of stretchy pants. Visa Wellington runs October 1st to 31st. Keep an eye on visawoap.com for more info. Tasty Bites. A positive that has sprung out of our time at home has been a surge in artisan producers and local food and drink producers becoming more visible and accessible to us online. Chef Craig Martin used his lockdown time to start up a Facebook group called Uniquely New Zealand Food and Beverage to showcase the huge diversity of New Zealand products on offer. And I think it's just a great time to have something like this um, started up and get the word out and get, uh, get people to buy New Zealand. You know, more and more joining every day, so that's really good. What was the purpose of starting it up? I just, you know, be, being a chef, I mean, there's so much good producers out there, but a lot of people have never heard of like saffron growing in New Zealand or truffles in New Zealand. There's a lot of uh, new gin supplies popping up, um, lots of uh, native um, indigenous um, products like these kawakawa um, sodas and different types of stuff like that. So it's, you know, it's really interesting seeing those things pop up that, you know, I, I didn't even know there was that many gin supplies in New Zealand. So it's just making people more aware of, you know, we've got everything on our doorsteps. Over 2,000 members have joined the group in just a few short weeks. 
So head over to Uniquely New Zealand Food and Beverage on Facebook and discover some fabulous opportunities to buy local. News Bites. Foley Wines has announced a mega multi-million dollar development in Marlborough with construction commencing later this year. Claire Sussmilch, Marketing and Communications Manager at Foley, describes the new development as a unique hospitality destination. It's going to be home to Foley Wines brands in Martinborough, Tikaranga, Martinborough Vineyard and Lighthouse Gin. It's going to include a restaurant, private dining room, tasting room, an underground barrel hall and Lighthouse Gin will have a new distillery in the complex as well. How many people will you be able to cater to there? So the restaurant will be able to seat 100 people inside and additionally out on the terrace. And what's the restaurant going to be? So we'll be working out the menu once we've got a chef on board, but we do know there'll definitely be a strong focus on local produce from the region. And it's quite a huge commitment. Uh, It's a huge project. So does this mean that Foley is quietly confident about local and then international support once borders are open again? Yeah, it is a big commitment, but we feel um, really confident about the region. We know more and more people are falling in love and getting excited with the wines from Martinborough. And we just think it's really important that our brands, Tikaranga, Martinborough Vineyard and Lighthouse Gin, have a home that people can visit. So we're excited about both New Zealanders visiting and also international tourists when that opens again. The building has been designed by award-winning architect Charlie Knott, known for Best Ugly Bagels, Depot Eatery and Amosphere Winery. Smart Bites. Kiwi food technology company Aripa is gaining some global attention for its groundbreaking patented smart drink that combines a unique variety of New Zealand black currants with an extract of New Zealand pine bark. These specialised ingredients are often referred to as nootropics, a buzzword used to describe compounds that support cognitive function, with some growing evidence that anthocyanin-rich New Zealand black currants vastly improve brain functions from clarity to focus. A recent University of Auckland study is the first to suggest that the formula supports cognitive function. Co-founder and CEO Angus Brown is understandably excited about the possibilities. Yeah, we are. The results further prove that this formula reduces mental fatigue when you need it most. From the sports field to the boardroom, mental fatigue is everywhere. There's increasing pressure to be switched on and to function at a really high level at all times. Our formula ultimately improves how the mind works, particularly under stress, in this case physical, um, and has a benefit for all types of consumers. We're calling it brain food for the modern world. The peer-reviewed study has been published in the science journal Antioxidants. You can find more info at drinkaripa.com. Cuisine Bites, brought to you by Gaganau. Ben Bailey is a New Zealand chef on a quest to tell an authentic New Zealand food story. One that aligns his food with growers, producers and customers in a way that's sustainable for the planet as well as the many diverse stakeholders involved. The interesting thing about the conversation you're about to hear with Ben is that it started mid-February and was intended for release alongside our March issue of Cuisine magazine. And well, we all know what happened next. I caught up with Ben again last week to see how he was feeling post-COVID Level 3 restrictions and find out how he's contemplating the future. So snuggle up somewhere comfortable, get ready for a two-part conversation where Ben and I find ourselves in two very different situations on either side. For the love of foes. Now when we originally sat down back in February, I'd come across a photo of a very young Ben Bailey with a group of equally young chefs many of whom have now become celebrity chefs in their own right. I asked Ben what that photo was all about. 
Yeah, it was crazy. We, I'd never been overseas before. Um, I mean, my kids have been overseas many times already, but, you know, in the, growing up in the 80s and the 90s, um, we just didn't have access to that sort of travel. And so I started, I became a chef. I was a kitchen hand for two years when I was at Te Amaru College, where I'm from in the Waikato. And I had a great chef. He was also a part-time lecturer at the, um, the, at the Waikato Polytech. And so he was a phenomenal mentor to me. You know, 15, 16, 17, I washed dishes. And my main sole thing there was to become the best dishwasher washer that I could. And I've got the utmost respect for the kitchen hands, you know. Um, so I did that, and then I, I went to culinary school, and then I entered a competition called Chef of the Year, and I think it still runs. Um, and actually, my, my boss in, in Waikato entered Chef of the Year, and I entered Commie Chef of the Year. And was and, that through, like, New Zealand Chefs Association? Yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. Okay. Okay. And so um, it was held up here in Auckland, and so we, you know, you had to do the uh, hot and cold presentation, you had to do a live, live cook-off, and you had to do um, a dessert thing, and it was kind of like a a triathlon of cooking events over three days. And um, um, my chef got second in, in Chef of the Year, and I won somehow. <laughs> and that was in 1999. And I won this competition. And the original prize was to go to the Gold Coast and work at some hotel, which was cool. I'd never been overseas. I was pretty pumped. But um, then they changed the prize, like, last minute, and um, they gave me a trip to... Providence, Rhode Island, which is in America, obviously, East Coast, New England, smallest state of, of America. And um, I won a scholarship there to go and cook at the Johnson Wales University of Culinary Arts. Um, well, they take it so serious over there. You get, like, degrees in cooking and all sorts of stuff. And so we went over there to train with these tutors. And it was a really awesome scholarship. And there were 16 of us from all over the world that won it. So there was a South African, um, which was Chantal Dartnell. Um, George Kalambaras had won the Gomi Chef of the Year in Australia, so he went. Um, another guy called Chris Eden, he's got a, a star or two now in England. Um, he was an English guy, and um, there was a, there was a you know a whole lot of us. There was a girl from Costa Rica. There was um, yeah people from all over, and we're all the same age. We're all like nineteen, twenty, and we're all in America for the first time. And um, we did a scholarship there, and it was amazing. Basically, that's how I met George, and. Um, and we're still great friends right now. So that was the kind of the start of it all. Do you remember, like, when did you go, oh, I reckon I can actually do this? Was that still too early then? Oh, I was in it then, 100%. It was all I was going to do by the time I was 19. I, um, it was a, Mum was getting really annoyed with me because I was, like, 13, 14 and baking banana cakes. It was a really good Alison Hulse banana cake recipe and... Um, Working bananas is such, you make ice cream without egg yolks and they make great cakes and it was a really easy recipe but I kept on stuffing it up and we didn't have a lot of money so um, mum sent me to a baker because she was tired of me wasting eggs and whatnot and um, a friend of hers and she taught me the fundamentals of almost food science when it comes to baking. So, you know, why you cream your butter and sugar, why you add your eggs slowly um, why you, f you sift your flour and fold it through. Why, 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 why? And that kind of really tweaked my interest at a young age. And so I did home economics in Taumaru College and I was like the only boy. <laughs> and, um, and I loved it and I beat all the girls too. I was like top of the class. It's the only thing I was good at. And um, it was cool. And so I just enjoyed it. And then um, I had another great teacher at school 
my economics teacher, not my home economics, but my economics teacher said, he was in charge of like placing students um, in businesses to see, you know, for them to figure out whether what they want to do with their lives. And so he asked me, I said, look, I'm thinking about becoming a chef. And this was like 15, 16. And then he teed me up a job, um, like an internship at a, the local restaurant. So I worked for a week on my holidays and they just offered me a job after that, $8 an hour. Big time, that was big cash then, it was a big coin. And so I could buy Billabong T-shirts. <laughs> you know, I thought I was the man. But you know, I'd, I'd play rugby. Uh, Did bro- you get Lynx deodorant? Uh, yeah, we used to pinch that from Woolies. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I'm just joking. Um, so um, I'd play rug- I'd do rugby practice on a Thursday, then I'd wash dishes there till about 10 p.m. on Thursday night. And then Friday I'd fall asleep in class and then I'd play rugby on Saturday and then straight from rugby I'd literally go there with dirty knees and put long pants over my dirty knees and wash dishes till 10pm on Saturday. So I did two shifts a week and then because my my chef at this restaurant called Taylor's Restaurant in Taumaru, because he was a part-time lecturer at, at Waikato Polytech, he, I got straight into the, to the school. Mm-hmm. And so I did one year full-time um, and then I just quit because I was like wanted to work and... That second year, that's when I did um, the uh, the Commerce Chef of the Year competition. I th- always knew I was going to learn more actually working 60, 70 hours in a restaurant than you would going to school. I did end, end up going back and finishing, um, but I did it on a part-time basis. So yeah, yeah. I'm an old hotel girl. I you know, started the marketing courses and all that sort of thing and then went, I want to be in the thick of it. I want to be hands-on. Yeah. I want to you know, get dirty. You know? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. It's the best way. So from the States then, did you, did you go straight back with George to Oz? Or? Yeah, what happened was... I met George, we were hanging out and having heaps of fun. I was like, man, this guy's cool. And um, George was opening a restaurant with Gary Megan. Um, bear in mind, George was young then, so he was just like chef the party. He wasn't like mm. the owner or head chef or anything. So so that would have been his first gig? Yeah, one of his. He worked at the Sofitel in Melbourne, which Ray McApoldy was the, um, the executive chef there. Amazing Scottish cook. And uh, so Gary was Raymond's sous chef at... Um, Sofitel and then um, Raymond got fired because he was one of those really fiery crazy mental chefs Um, so he got fired so he opened a restaurant called Phoenix with Gary and um, George was opening that so George and I were talking he goes dude come come over and um, so I literally came back to New Zealand after the scholarship packed my stuff and and flew over there so I lived in Melbourne for two years from 19 when I was 19 till I was like 21 Best thing you could have ever done. And then after that, what, you went back to, you did some time in London? Um, after that, um, I got a job in America. Mm. And I got a job right after 9-11, and, um, which I was very lucky to get because they basically shut the borders. And I went to, I got a job in Las Vegas uh, at Bellagio, the hotel. I was very young. I was 22 at that point, I think. And, yeah, it was crazy. Like, But there was 10,000 staff, so that was more staff in the, in the hotel that lived in my hometown. <laughs> They'd have a staff cafeteria that had 80 chefs working in it to cook for the 10,000 staff. Wow. So you'd be sitting there having your dinner and like all the um, cocktail waitresses would come down in their little skimpy outfits. I was 22, man. I was in heaven. <laughs> then all the, um, all the actors, all the um, dancers and the artists from Cirque du Soleil would come through. Mm. And so that'd be all kind of... You know, it all would make up and, and it was just such a place, it was just such a melting pot, all walks of life. A lot of Filipino, a lot of Hispanics, made a lot of friends um, and with people from those sort of walks of life that are, we just don't get exposed mm. to here. 
And did it also um, give you a kind of different overview, even though you were quite, quite young and it was early on in your career? Because a, a lot of chefs don't get to work in big corporate structures and it's very different. Oh, yes, you have to, it's very structured and you have to watch your P's and Q's and you have to follow the rules. Mm. And, you know, they drug test you. They, you get a 401k, I've still got a retirement plan in America. They, they give you a flu vaccination so you don't get sick. You know, that's just, it's a big operation, really slick. Um, and when I first started there, I actually did banqueting. I did I was one of the sous chefs in Garmage. You know those buffets, have you seen those buffets in Vegas? Like I'm talking caviar, like king crab, like the most amazing buffets you've ever seen. So we did all the cold food for that. Then we did all the cold food for banqueting. And so we'd do uh, General Motors annual general meeting, uh, 2,000 people, breakfast, lunch, dinner, afternoon tea, morning tea for, um, you know, like three or four days. So that's that sort of level. And I really fell in love with banqueting at that point. And I always love mixing fine dining and banqueting now because you can really do great food easily when you do events and stuff like that. And so I apply a lot of little techniques I learned there when I do that sort of stuff. Um, so I worked in banqueting and then I went to a place called Le Cirque, which was um, the Marchioni family from New York. They opened a little satellite restaurant in Bellagio. So I worked there, which was great. And then um, I could see my career path going down a, you know, one of those chefs with a tall hat and a clipboard. And and a bunch of showgirls. It's a different podcast, Kelly. <laughs> um, you know, when you were that, when you're a manager, when you're really young, and I just thought there was a lot more to learn. And so I moved to London, and that's when I really cut my teeth. And although America was awesome, like London kitchens are super ghetto. Like, it is badass in there. It's like, I always say, it's like the SAS of cooking and the hours are just phenomenal. Like, you're working, like, you've, like I've never worked before. And, you know, get up and you take the tube in the morning, but by the time you finish work, there would be no tube, so you have to take a night bus home. And So you'd be getting, like, three, literally three, four hours sleep every night whilst you did your, your long stretch of work. And then first day off, you'd sleep till four in the afternoon. But that's where I really learned, and it was the first time that I really worked in those Michelin-starred restaurants. And so I worked at a place called The Square, which was an institution with Phil Howard. And then I cooked the sauce section at The Square. That was like a big thing. So the sauce section in the game season, like in November, December, like snipe, widgeon, woodcock, uh, grouse, like all these game birds, It was which we don't have here. And that was amazing. You have all these timers, and you look in the oven, and there was you know, 20 different pans with bloody all these different birds and different game meats, and it was just crazy. And I just loved it. And I, my head chef there was a guy called Rob Weston, who was Marco Pierre White's head chef for a long time. And so Rob Weston carved my meats. So I'd have to cook him, <laughs> rest him. So I had Marco Pierre White's old head chef carve my meats. Oh my God, if you didn't get it right, you get your ass kicked big time. And so, but I, I just loved it. And yeah, it was great. And God, the pressure. Yeah, and I always thought after I always thought that the French cuisine was always the pinnacle, you know. And that was my I always you know, when you started culinary school in New Zealand, you always learn a bit of French words and all that sort of stuff. And so I went to France and um, worked there for three years in the end and learned French, which was for me in Te Amuru, you don't get to learn another language. You can't, I mean, even learning Māori was not even important, mm. let alone another language. Many people say the same thing that French cuisine is the pinnacle. Do you still feel that way now? I do and I don't. The French are the masters of technique, yeah. but I think um, the French culture goes back to, you know, the Gauls. Like the, 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 it's a it's a, a piece of earth that we pretty much humanity started. And they developed the kitchen brigade. 
they did. And they've had on a very productive, Italy's the same, and Spain, the, 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 that land is super productive. It's in the Goldilocks zone of latitude, um, that 45th parallel that we always talk about, and great food, great wine. I mean, Italy's got 40,000 edible native plants. That combined with the long history of humanity and also being conquered and then um, those cultures conquering other people, so they've brought back a lot of different information. And out of that, a cuisine is born. You cannot deny the Italians and the French when it comes to food. Like, and the, the French have a more technique driven and a bit more um, sophisticated. The Italian, it's all about the raw ingredient and doing less to it, which, and, and less ingredients together. And they've just spent methodically for hundreds and maybe thousands of years thinking about how to make food taste yum. And we just don't have that culture. So it's really hard to compare. Italian and French cuisine has influenced, you know, you know the, the new American cuisine is amazing. And mm. um, maybe a Scandinavian cuisine wouldn't be so great if it wasn't for the Spanish because that's where they all trained, you know. And um, so I think what a lot of cuisines have learned, they've looked to those, I call them like mother cuisines, you know, yeah. they're, the, they're the ones that started it all. And The French in particular are responsible for elevating to that sort of that absolute pinnacle of fine dining level, no? Yeah, 100%. And when you go to like a small town in France, these are little small towns have like um, two Michelin star restaurants and that's where I went. It was a small town. The patron of the of the hotel or the restaurant is seen as the mayor of the town. Mm. And, I mean, he's on a par level with a doctor or, you know, that sort of, you know, when people judge you on your, what you do for your career, that's sort of, that, that's how they see, um, see those sort of people. They're held in very high regard. Being a professional waiter in France is seen as a really solid profession. Mm. Whereas chefs have changed here, like it's quite a cool profession to be in in New Zealand, but with being a waiter, it's not really seen yet as a serious contender, as a great thing to do with your life. Mm. But in France, it's like a, a really top job. Mm. Same in Spain. You see guys in, in the bars and in the restaurants, and it's like it's, um, it's a family tradition. It's handed down from father to son, and they work in this business, and they're so incredibly proud of it, whereas we seem to do it just as a, as a job till you get a real job. That's right. So, I mean, we employ a lot of millennials that are going on to being engineers or they're all off to study. And I'm like, why don't you, you're so good at what you do. Why don't you just stay in hospo, please? Please, can you stay? Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about how, how we keep people in hospo. But first, let's get on with your life history here because I'm really fascinated. You came back to New Zealand after about 10 years or so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. off travelling. And so then what? So after France, three years, I went back to London for two more and worked at the library, which was my kind of finishing restaurant, I thought. Mm. Brett was pushing, he had one Michelin star and he was pushing for two. And that was a real time to work at a restaurant. When a restaurant's got three Michelin stars, it's like, whatever, you go in and everything's set up and you do your job. And mm. But when a restaurant is pushing and a chef is really driven, that's the time like that was. For, so I learned heaps there. My wife, Cara, we got married in London. She's from Tiamaru, my, she's my high school sweetheart. And we got ended up getting married in London. She was like over it. Um, she goes, I'm going home, you can come too if you want. And I'm like, okay. So I thought about that for three months and decided it was good to come home. And so I called Simon Wright at the French Cafe. I'm like, man, you know, have you got a job? He's like, yes. So he goes, when you're back? I'm like, you know, three months. He's cool. So I went and I did a um, trial and, and just nothing came of it. And then I was looking around, I couldn't find anything. So my brother, um, he's a builder and I love building. And so... I worked for him for a, for a good stint and dug holes in the rain. Um, then finally I got a job with Peter Thornley 
so Peter Thornley is um, a really well-known chef um, from the generation before me, really, and uh, awesome chef, amazing. And um, so he was an executive chef of a restaurant called Kermadec, and he had brought in a couple of young guys like me. It was it was awesome to work there, a beautiful kitchen, but where the people dined was always the old Kermadec. And so um, the direction that I wanted to go in and what the, the business was going in was different. And then Sid Sarawat um, handed his notice in and was opening Sid Art and at the Grove. And so Michael, um, Sid and Michael came to see me and um, and Michael gave me the job, which I was like pumped about. And, um, and you know, I worked with Michael for nine years after that. And uh, so him and I are like brothers, eh? It's funny. Quite a, um, quite a relationship, you two, actually. I remember when I arrived here and I met you within the first few months here and you pitched me all these ideas about this madcap trip that you were doing to Italy. And oh, I was yeah. like, I thought the two of you were almost married. Yeah, it seems like that sometimes. <laughs> we're so different, yet we're so alike. Yeah. And uh, actually, I actually bumped in, into him today and um, I miss him when I don't see him. It's one of those guys. Mm-hmm. And, um, but sometimes during service, um, you know, there's a lot of like, a lot of passion there. And, um, and it's all about delivering the best thing for the customer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a great, great time. And um, um, we opened Baduzzi as well. And um, I was really, you know, I had to move on in the end, but it, I really spiritually always say that I spiritually own. And you, you talked about mentoring as well. I mean, Michael must be one of the people that's that's had so many people under his wing and go through his restaurants and, and, and sort of cut their teeth learning from him, huh? Yeah, you learn a lot from him. Um, you learn a, a lot of what not to do too, Michael, if you're listening. <laughs> and um, I think the one thing that Michael and Annette Durf do is they provide you with a platform and they don't get up in your junk. They're awesome at picking talented people. Mm. Even like there's great people all through those businesses, and once you earn their trust, they don't let, they just give you have cut a really long leash. Michael's got great ideas, so if Michael had an idea, I wouldn't be like, you know, what what are you? I'd be like, what? Yeah, I'd be like, wow, that's actually good. And you know, when you're under that pressure to produce menus all the time, you want people to give you input. So it's just stupid when people have those egos around, it's my food. Well, no, it's a group of people cooking and working together to give our customers a great experience. And if we lose sight of that, the thing we're meant to do there the most, and that is to give people a great experience and blow them away when they come, when they're giving up you know, a couple hundred bucks of their hard-earned money, if we don't focus on that, then... Mm. You know, and and if, if your ideas are, are good ideas, they make me look good. A hundred percent, and... <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's Michael is a gifted hospitality guru. Mm. Like so, so into the Grove, and when did you Ben hit your stride in Auckland? Like when, when did you know you'd made it? I haven't made it at all. Even now, I don't think you were the darling of the fine dining scene. By the time I got here, I mean you'd had. Um, while you were there, the Grove had three hats. You had um, the title of Cuisine Chef of the Year and Best Metropolitan Restaurant while you were there, um, uh, Metro Restaurant of the Year. So, you know, you had quite a few few gongs or notches in the belt. Yeah, I, I you know, I just, I think we turned the page pretty quick. Um, we don't smell the roses. Mm. You know, I think sometimes when you win awards, there's actually more pressure on you and um, people's expectations increase. 
mean, it's a bit different when you kind of, oh, I heard this restaurant's pretty good, and, they, and you go there and they bloody blow you away, like, oh my God, who are these guys? But then when you get kind of known, people come in and the expectation is super high, and, you know, so... And there's also that pressure on you to stay at that level and sustain that, yeah? Yeah, I mean, one day I'd like to have three hats again, but maybe, I think, I don't know. Mm. I think for me it's, it's more about, um, you, you know, I've got a family, I've got three children, and I've got a wife, and um, so... I want to involve them in what we're doing. I want I want to truly live that. Hosp- hospitality is not a job; it's a lifestyle. I want to truly live that. And then my daughter's ten, and she works now at the grounds. I think I wanted to um, use my skills in other areas as well. And so I had an opportunity to open a restaurant called the, called the Grounds in Henderson and Henderson Valley Road, and it was four acres. And we wanted to do a family destination. And I thought, God, I've done all these skills fine dining. I can make kids' food taste real yum. And the offerings in New Zealand are crap for kids' food. Mm-hmm. It's processed food and it's deep fried, so it's a double whammy of, and it's covered in salt. So I want to do something a bit more health-driven, but also a place where parents can kind of chill and, and let their kids run wild and they can have a glass of wine mm-hmm. and not feel like they're a bad parent. Um, there's still naughty mixed with the nice there, and you know, in the days, kids still love French fries. That's just somehow ingrained in their Western bodies. Um, and so I was doing... Grove, Baduzzi and that place and I told Michael that I wanted to finish at the Grove and I'd been there for nine years and I said look I'll finish and when you find someone or we find someone and so we found we found someone and then I left and then I stayed at Baduzzi just on and off for a wee bit and then finally made the transition to be fully self-employed which is all, always a major thing you know a chef often feels trapped um, when they work for restaurateurs you know they need to earn a salary they start having a family when they're about 30 they start get their first mortgage and then you're now all of a sudden trapped trying to deliver this great uh, experience to your customers but also having the pressure of family life and trying to earn money to pay your bloody mortgage and support your kids and fat wife and blah, blah, blah. How do you think Cara would describe your approach to work-life balance now? Um, It's definitely better now. Um, I'm still working a lot, but I dictate what I work. I mean, soon we're opening a restaurant in town and I'll be working big hours again. And that's just the reality of it. Um, so, I mean, to, to do this, you have to be driven. And, I mean, sometimes you're exhausting just to listen to when you listen to all the balls that you've got in the air. Um, and I get that. But, I, you know, I've had other chefs tell me that they think that this work-life balance thing is actually not achievable. And, and to be fair, you see a lot of chefs as they progress up the career ladder and they get to a certain stage where they can step back and go, okay, I haven't got anything to prove anymore now. I can, mm. you know, I can sort of drop a few of the balls and, and um, do it at my own pace. But when you're young, is it realistic to really say that you, that you can have it all? Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's your life. So, I mean, I don't mean to be condescending when I say that. It's just... A lot of young people these days can't see the pathway and can't see how to how they're going to position themselves into a spot where they can have a bit of freedom. You know, the first step is just they have to work really hard. And, and I think for me, what was the key to finding this work-life balance is really understanding how a restaurant business works. Like, understand the financials, understand that your position or your whole menu has to be sustainable when it comes to business so you can't have something that's got the wrong food cost you yes you're trying to give customers a a really great experience and that's your primal thing to do but very close if not equal first equal is making sure the business is sustainable and so I see a lot of people uh, especially owner operators getting sucked into that where you own 100% of something and um, you have to work 
like a maniac to get that up and running and to and to sustain it. Whereas I've tried to figure out different business models where I own, um, I work with someone that's highly experienced and they become my business partner. I get to learn from them. So you've got some skin in the game, but you're not holding all the all the responsibility. Yeah, I, and and a friend of mine taught me this, and they. You know, you want to own a small slice of a big pie, not a big slice of a small pie. And if you own a big slice of a small pie, um, if you're a restaurateur, you're always worried your chef's going to leave. You know, and um, so you kind of get you get kind of a little bit stuck there. So being driven, yes, that's obviously very important. But sometimes you're driven and you don't know why you're driven. It's just innate. You know, you just like, oh, stuff it. I'm just going to. You know, you just don't really know the future, but you just got to believe. A couple of years ago we started the conversation about New Zealand hospitality and mental health and you threw yourself into that, like you jumped on board, you were straight on board and you got right into that. Why? Why were you so passionate about that? Yeah, my wife is, suffers from depression and, and she's a phenomenal woman. I mean, she's, when I met her she was on antidepressants when she was 16 and last year she gave up cold turkey, which is not, you should not do this. And she didn't tell a doctor, she didn't even tell me. But she's just over being medicated. So from, you know, 16 to 39, she had been on various types of medication. Man, God, she did it. But it was a real tough January, last last January when this when she did this. And I kind of realised, you know, I hadn't supported her in the right way as well. Like I was very focused on that in my 20s on investing in myself and my career and I thought when I saw that sort of, it kind of just woke me up and I thought, God, I'm a shit husband. And, and we had a lot of people come through, like especially the Grove, and you'd have your core group of people, like five or six guys that were like weapons, like they were just machines. And those, all those people that were a part of that group now own their own restaurants in Auckland, like, you know, Leslie Hodio and Apero and Shannon and Fraser at Lilius and there's some Mikey Newlands and um, other chefs are overseas running restaurants. and. They were all real a tight like kind of support group, but there was always those fringe staff that were coming, couldn't handle it, walked out. I'm going to get a coffee and I'll go into the dairy and then gone. <laughs> and you go to the and first thing we do is go check the changing room and their shoes would be gone and their knives. I'm going to the dairy with my knife kit and, we, yeah. and it was yeah. we all joked about it and stuff and that was just bad. before the restaurant filled up with people, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Although, <laughs> you know, so it was pretty. And it's, we still joke about it now, but I think like as you get older, you start to look at yourself and you brush your teeth, you look yourself in the mirror in the morning and you wonder how you can be better. And you can't keep going around blaming these kids that came in and, oh, they just can't handle it, they're not tough enough, you know, whatever. And so I, 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 we can't afford to lose staff like that anymore. And also, we've got to be smarter about how we, how we train and look after our people. I mean... Yes, we have to be t- tough on our standards, but also we have to show more empathy and realise there's different personalities out there. Somehow meet in the middle, so we're both on the same page. Mm. And so I had this one kid called Brody, and uh, Brody Jenkins, beautiful little, beautiful little guy, I love him. And he was just struggling at the Grove. He was actually a really good cook. He still is a great cook. Brody's was like, I loved him. He's such a pain in the ass. Like he'd be like, dude, come on, like. Middle of service, he'd just like crumble. And then I pulled him in the office one, after, one, day, one night after service. This was pre my wife giving up antidepressants. So it was, everything was kind of happening at once. It was just a little bit before. And Brody goes, look, I suffer from depression. I just can't change gears, man. I just want to work faster, but I can't. And then it all gets too much. And 
and we all shed a tear in the office, you know, and I was like, man, finally someone's like giving me that little light bulb moment with him, the Brody moment. And so he taught me a great lesson there and actually kind of transcended into the way I have, I deal with my wife and, and our relationship that he actually helped me with my own marriage in a weird way because he helped you understand the the different thought process and the different yeah yeah. i mean if you're depressed it's very hard to articulate to someone exactly what that feels like and there's different types feels like of depression people are depressed in different ways and so we pulled him out of there and plonked him at the grounds which he excelled at that place And then he's now he's, he does his social media, he's opened a burger truck, and I mean, he's on the cusp of giving up cooking and giving up hospitality. And now he's really diversified his income and diversified what role he plays in our hospitality world. And, you know, if I had kept on nailing him and kept on, you know, being one-dimensional in my um, management of my team, then he could have given up and he would have been lost, to, to, yeah. you know. And... Um, I don't know, it's just, it's quite simple, like there's two things, A, you want to be better and you want to get the best out of people and like you said before, they make you look good. And, and, and B, newsflash, there's a real shortage of staff in hospitality. Why aren't we looking after our people better? Why? It's crazy. It's a huge responsibility um, to restaurateurs and to and to chefs to take care of their teams. But there's also that underlying thing of most kids nowadays are going, well, you know, why would I want to work that hard when everybody else is out having a drink and enjoying their mates and all that sort of thing and get paid what I get paid because it's not great money, especially not in the beginning, So or sometimes never. So... I mean, yeah, I've got no sort of, I mean, you have to pay your staff correctly. So I don't have a lot of sympathy for people that don't do that at all. Times have changed. We employ millennials now. Millennials, you know, think a lot differently um, than my generation. So I'm the generation above millennials. Millennials, they get paid by the hour. They've got a real high self-worth. And when you understand the millennial mindset, these things start to, you start to understand how, how our restaurant scene needs to change. I mean, we in New Zealand are just as bad as Australian restaurants, yet we just haven't been caught yet. Mm. Well, there's chefs working on a salary that are working a whole lot of hours over their 45 hours they're contracted for. And that's exactly what's going on there. Australia's a bit harsher because um, depending on what state you are, you'd know this, Kelly, I mean, but it's depending on what state you get paid a certain amount of overtime on something. I mean, in South Australia, I think you get paid time and a half on Saturday and then you get double time on a Sunday or something like that so there's different employment law rules there but ultimately we in New Zealand have like we don't we don't have in in our businesses but um, I've made it very clear to my friends like if you've got salary staff on on a 45-hour contract and they're working 60 70 it's only a matter of time before someone something happens Mm. so we pay people by the hour Um, we have a couple of salary staff but they're managers um, I have to ask this, you know, I grew up working in hotels and restaurants and I absolutely love it and I know how hard it is. But I also, you know, if I got the chance to go and work with Heston or with Neil Perry or whatever, I'd, I'd give them absolutely everything just to be able to do that for a couple of years. And I would, you know, is that wrong? Is that the wrong attitude these days to have? It's the right attitude to have, um, but we live in a different world now. Mm. So it's, um, you just can't, like, I mean, I mean, Australia is very unionised as well. 
Um, but I think the union stifles creativity and it stifles drive and passion because um, they teach you to clock in and clock out every day and don't work overtime and don't do this and you deserve this and blah, blah, blah. But what people have to understand is, is that you're actually investing yourself. Like you're like a bank, you're putting money into it. You're, you're taking knowledge from these rock stars. And one day you can roll all that together and make it your own and some maybe be a rock star yourself one day. So who knows what will happen if, you, if you're super creative and driven like this. But at the end of the day, there's a generational change and millennials I've grown to love working with because we employ 16, 17 and 18 year olds at the grounds mm-hmm. and they are great kids and, but they just think differently than us. You know, I've been here, what, four years now and worked my way around the country talking to restaurateurs and chefs all over and it amazes me, it frightens me actually, the number of chefs that I have tell me that they haven't had a price rise on their menus for five, six years because their customers wouldn't wear it. And that kind of worries me about our actual, the general public's value in the restaurant offering and in, an, in a restaurant that's using premium ingredients and yeah. paying their staff properly. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Like, we haven't been able to increase prices too much, but then we're not serving caviar anymore either like we were. So you have to be smarter about what cuts you use, what ingredients you use. Mm. You have to be more seasonal because if you're using aubergines, aubergines in the wintertime, you're a, you're a dickhead. Let's face it. So every invoice in the restaurant that comes in, whether it's food or beverage, gets every day entered into a cost of good sheet. And that is compared also to revenue of food or beverage, depending. And so therefore, every day you can see what your wage costs. So Steve, my man Steve Stepsy down in Queenstown, amazing head chef, look at my text. Every day he texts me the food cost. Because we had a bit of an issue down there because Queenstown's real hard with getting ingredients. Mm-hmm. And it's more expensive. And so we need to get a better handle on it. So... He's like, um, you know, hey, Monday it's 40% our food costs, but we've got a whole lot of stuff in and we're prepping for the week. And then as the week goes on, he knows exactly and I know exactly where he's at. So I want to see the food costs at 40 in the like maybe on a Monday at Baduzzi was 80% on a Monday. Mm-hmm. And then, but you need to drive it down throughout the week and then chefs can make smart purchasing decisions about what how much they can afford to spend. I mean, obviously, if you've got a target food cost of, we, we run on 30%, so quite high again. If you've got a target 30% for your food cost and a chef is, the head chef is spending 40%, well, they're, in, in a way, spending money doesn't belong to them. Mm. It belongs to the business. You've got 30%, that's what you've got. So if you're taking, you know, 10 grand, you've got, uh, in food sales, you've got three grand that week spent on food. It's pretty simple. So... People that are complaining, they need to start looking at their revenue daily and comparing that to what they spend daily. And then you're not waiting for the accountant 10 days after the first of the month to tell you that your food costs sucked. Like, we've got to be smart and it's a business. And yes, we're going to make people happy because we're really good at our jobs. But you have to run a business, man. Like, it's half your... Puts a, a new connotation on the word smart casual, didn't it? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> So tell me about Aosta, because I feel like you're evolving yourself. You've kind of gone that full fine dining, deg whole scene, and you seem to be in a really happy place at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I love Italian food, and we, we part of the when we lived in France, we um, lived very close to the Italian border, and we'd travel down through the Mont Blanc Tunnel, and we'd go down through to Aosta, Cara, my wife and I, and we'd hang there. All my pasta making gear from is from the little the town Aosta. And I, f- I felt like there's a lot of synergies with the Schiss Rock and the kind of Central Otago 
landscape very similar to Aosta um, and similar latitude, uh, real, you know, similar, I, I mean, Italian, North Italian food suits my style of cooking. Like I really love cooking. I'm quite, a, you know, I'm getting a bit lighter as I get older as a chef, but, you know, I love using butter and like braises and all those sort of things. I love using cheap cuts of meat and making them taste amazing. And then I started to look at the wines of Northern Italy and we were comparing them to wines from Central Otago and Canterbury and there was a lot of similarities between the actual terroir that the vines were grown in. Mm. Also from a business sense, Italian food, people get it and they love it and there's always going to be um, an Italian restaurant in every town. And I love making pasta too, like I just love making pasta, I just it's like my therapy. After leaving Baduzzi I needed a place where I could kind of do that still. I mean, also talking about diversifying your income, you just want to, I wanted to go and check out what Queenstown had to offer. And what I found down there was, I mean, the food is so different down there. Um, that what you can get, you have to be really seasonal. We work with, and this is actually comes from Vaughan Mabee, who's become a great friend, gave me all his suppliers, bless his heart. And Kind of nice, huh? Yeah, I mean, solidarity, that's what Vaughan's all about. Um, with his team, he works well. He, everyone inputs into his menu, and he does not hide that fact. So, and he's a super different character to me. So we kind of really it's like yin yang, and we really I really just enjoy my time there. But you know, we're going um, three times a week. Um, uh, the guys have to drive down to Gibson Valley and pick up a lot of our veggies from Nevis Gardens. And um, there's another guy called Rocket Man, and there's all these different kind of growers down there. And you know what? Whatever's there, that's what you have to write the menu out of. Mm. You don't get that in Auckland. It's like you get veg deliveries three times a day. You can get whatever you want. Um, things come first thing in the morning. I mean, stuff shows up to the restaurant at like 5 p.m. Mm. Like the bloody... I think what I loved when I was sitting there the first night having dinner was I was looking at social media and seeing oh. Nate from Gravity Fishing catching something for you for the restaurant. Didn't realise at the time that it was for you. Um, and then the next thing I saw a photo of Mike Shatura kissing it, I think, in, <laughs> in the kitchen. He loves kissing cod, that guy. <laughs> yeah. And then the next thing it was in front of me and you were telling me the story about it. And then I put it all together and I was like, wow, I mean, how amazing to have these relationships going on and then it's ending up on the plate in front of you. It was it sort of brought it home. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, it, it also... It allows you, when you spend a certain time in a certain region, you start to discover it and you pull out all these kind of um, little gems, you know, and and when you really truly start cooking from a region, it just twists your kind of perspective on stuff. And mm-hmm. so now we're opening um, in Auckland uh, later this year and it's kind of really made me question or, or th- think deeply about what our concept is and what we're trying to achieve and um, really um, New Zealand from the region, I always look at the rugby regions, you know, it's it's very, very, very different. And um, when you live in Auckland, as a chef, you really truly don't know the South until you kind of go down there and live it. Mm-hmm. Actually, that was the greatest gift that um, Arrowtown or Queenstown, that kind of journey gave me. Mm-hmm. And also drinking with Vaughan's pretty fun. <laughs> if you can survive, yeah. <laughs> all right, so you just mentioned the new Commercial Bay project, which we're all yeah. really excited about. Not another Aosta. No, we're going to do, like, so this is kind of my dream restaurant, and it's what... Um, smart casual. Smart casual, mate. Smart, it's all about smart casual. <laughs> yeah, it'll be no white tablecloth, so the food will be as good as we can make it. 
there's a real, I mean, it's called Commercial Bay, there's a real commercial reality about moving into Commercial Bay because they're very commercial with their price of rent. Mm. And anyone around town, uh, around Auckland's probably had a look down there and they've seen the price of rent. And, and a few of the, the big boys are around you as well, so you're in good company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, it's going to be fun. Um, but it's also, they've really, Commercial Bay's thought a lot about how they integrate with the viaduct and with Britom Art. So they've always said that's like the tooth um, the missing tooth and the smile of the Auckland waterfront. And that was just that disgusting kind of um, downtown plaza that was there beforehand. Mm-hmm. And that building that was probably built in the 70s that was down there all covered in like signage and hoardings. So it was it, it needed to happen. And I wanted a great location and that's what we got. And we looked at Soul Bar, we looked at French Cafe was for sale, we did look at other stuff. I think... We did our research, but unfortunately it's taken so long to open because of the building taking is just, you know, it's hideous down there. So still in the frustrating stage, but where are you going to get to? Uh, we're going to call it Ahi, like uh, A-H-I, and it's the, the Māori word for fire. And I want to open a New Zealand restaurant, obviously, and um, I think it's the right time for me to kind of figure out who I am as a chef and um, what where I think New Zealand cuisine is at and, and through my eyes. And that will shine through with how we serve our customers and that I love antipathy and hospitality and um, that how we are, we're, we're professional but casual like and informal. Mm. I just love that and it's more of a how are you versus a good evening sir, you know. But still really professional and I'll give it a mild name because I just thought, man, I can't open a New Zealand restaurant without paying respect to the old people. Mm. We have a big fire pit there. But it's more about the fire and energy, and, and Māori have the word ahika, which means to keep the home fires burning. If your iwi, your people, leave the, the, the land, therefore it doesn't belong to you anymore. I mean, no sort of money exchanged hands. Um, so always, they, there's always someone who is on the land from your family or from your people looking after the land. And so it was more about that, like, you know, it's um, keep the home fires burning. Um, we thought was a really great name and we've taken advice on it obviously and um, we're doing a TV show around New Zealand food at the moment and Mahitahi, our um, production company who we've done a joint venture with to get the show off the ground, um, they were instrumental in naming it. Um, Jade and Tiarahi Mapi and Peter Tainui um, gave us a big hand with that and culturally what it means to give something a Māori name, mm-hmm. what that means. Mm-hmm. And um, I've learnt a lot and even though I'm an eighth generation New Zealander, um, I've got a lot to learn about um, how things work. And then came lockdown and all of the pain and uncertainty that every single one of us experienced in some shape or form. It's an understatement to say that COVID-19 has had a huge effect on our restaurant and hospital industry. So it was only right to check back in and see where Ben was at. Cuisine Bites, brought to you by Gaganau. So here we are. In level two, Ben, and I think uh, it'd be fair to say things have changed a wee bit since we last talked, which was just a couple of weeks before lockdown. It's been an interesting journey. I've, I've learned a lot and I'm very grateful. I mean, I'm 40 years old now, so I'm halfway through my career, so to speak, and um, I've learned some hard lessons. Um, I actually needed a break. I, I think I was kind of like borderline burnt out. Yeah. And so I had, you know, five weeks at home, spending time with my children. I've got three kids. So there were positives. Um, I'll never go back to the way I did business before or run a restaurant before um, COVID-19. So that's glass half full approach. 
Yeah, I think everyone's kind of coming to terms with that all around us. At the time when I spoke to you, I asked you about what the biggest challenge to the hospitality industry in New Zealand would be, and you talked to uh, food costs, shortage of staff and mental health. How would you answer that question now? Yeah, shortage of staff, we've got plenty of staff now, I'll tell you that. Mm. Um, kind of, We've gone from being short staff for the last three years to mm. being borderline overstaffed and, and it's concerning moving into the next round of subsidy. I mean, a lot of restaurants won't be 50% down, but they won't be back to 100% either. A lot of good restaurants especially will fit into that um, category where they won't be able to claim a wage subsidy on the next round. Yeah. And with over expectations like um, on the last two weeks of trade. Um, so yeah, we're overstaffed now, as long as short of it. And there's been some people that have been laid off, which is just devastating, but at the same time, that's yeah. not a problem that we'll face opening a restaurant now is finding people to yeah. work. Yeah. Um, mental health has gone moved from a, um, a different stage. I think the biggest struggle that mental health wise that I had over the lockdown period was, you know, we got paid the subsidy from the government and, and w- which we're very grateful, but the subsidy was not any money to prop up a business. It was money to go directly to staff, yeah. which is great. At the start, like the rules were super loose and we didn't know the right thing to do. And so the first two weeks of lockdown were, to be fair, stressful because we were learning how to essentially be become the work and income for the government, which is totally fine. And I mean, the worst case scenario is that like a whole lot of hospitality people go onto um, the benefit, which we don't want. But the rules changed a few times and we had to actually change the way we divvied out the subsidy. I mean, at the grounds, four people we paid um, 80% and the rest of them got 100%. So we managed to do that right up until last week. We're proud of that, to be honest. Um, really proud. However, mental health wise, whoa, you just don't want to make a mistake. You've been, all of a sudden, you've got $150,000 in your bank. And I think people were finding loopholes and then, so they were tightening up the rules as they went. And so now we've kind of got through that now, um, especially after we've reopened. You know, we haven't needed everyone. Um, but of course they were all getting paid the same wages all the way through and including when we opened. So getting staff inspired to go, hey, we're open now, you've got to come back to work when, hey, they, you know, <laughs> having Netflix marathons or some of them anyway, you know, and getting paid yeah. their 100% wages. But then we've had a situation where we've been a little bit overstaffed and staff haven't been on the ball, you know. So it's been a different type of stress. It's definitely changed the way I think about things. Um, but it's just how you lead and inspire your team has changed. We did the takeouts, seemed to be incredible support for everybody. I think all of us at home, all of the home cooks were well over our home cooking by the yeah, end of that were, sort yeah. of six weeks. We were like, okay, we're over our cooking no matter how fabulous a cook we are and we were dying to get out to the restaurants again. But the honeymoon period, is that – how are you feeling? I mean, I know nobody um, knows. It's done. Yeah. You know, I've just kept in contact with a few of my hospo friends and especially in the city and – you know, it requires a lot of work to do the, the click and collect, actually. Um, mm. Manning um, the email, making sure you're on the ball with it. It's not something you want to mess up. You get people coming to the restaurant, they don't have the, you know, the food ready. And we did deliveries as well. But as we moved into level two, from level three into level two, people started going to the supermarkets again. And people started to sit down in restaurants again. Mm. And then we just saw the grab and go business die away. That will be varied answers depending on what restaurant and what restaurateur and chef you're talking to. Um, I just worry that the click and collect stuff 
you can't sustain that, I don't think, because you can't pay the overheads, surely, of a restaurant and all of the overheads that you've got. You might as well just be then operating out of a, um, you know, a warehouse kitchen or whatever. Yeah. And... I guess our thoughts were that it could become another arm to the business. Mm. So, you know, if we did 15% click and, click and collect over a week, then it would be worth um, maintaining it. And perhaps going uh, into winter as well. For, for some restaurants, yeah. it might be a, a better option. Everyone's different, you're right, and so everyone's... It's still the unknown, isn't it? It's really just, we just don't yeah. know. Yeah, and we're still doing it, and, and we're going to continue to do it. I'll, I'll give it another two weeks, and that would be a good four weeks. Um, I think that after I've had four weeks of data with people being able to dine in the restaurant, at that point we'll make a decision whether we continue with click yeah. and collect. You, you mentioned there that you've really changed personally. How have you changed? What will you do differently now? We, you know, we went through all the costs of the business for a fine-tooth comb. And we, we looked at a lot of things that we were purchasing per week, like whether it was a subscription to something or as an indoor plants subscription, you know, or um, some sort of cleaning thing or like a laundry or we went through everything. Um, and I found a few things. I actually feel kind of stupid. Like I had all these empty CO2 bottles outside. I found out that BOC gas, bless their hearts, charge you 70 cents a day for every gas bottle. And there was, I found like eight of them out the back and they've been there for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. And I was super angry. Like, I was angry at myself, you know, like that I'd missed that. It's it's just everything from Spotify, you know, for music. And I just, you know, I brought my own one and then I made, I brought the premium one and I just added the restaurant on. <laughs> yeah. Like, every, everything, mate, yeah. you know, like just going, how do we still keep the same experience for our customers but take away the crap? Yeah. Not the crap as in it's bad, as in stuff we don't need to operate. And, I mean, at the end of the day, we're providing an experience for our customers, you know. We can't cut certain things. We can't have less stuff. We can't have crap ingredients. Like, we, we're human beings serving human beings. And we're selling an experience. There is stuff like, you know, menus, like the cost of paper, printing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're in that game. You're like, mm-hmm. you know how much it costs. And, okay, can we streamline the menu? We're chopping and changing the wine list every five minutes because we meet someone and blah. No, let's set it for three months. You know, we don't have to chop and change the wine list and you've got to re-change st- retrain staff and... And that costs money, yep. and and so it's stuff like that. Um, that it makes a difference, at, huh? Yeah, it does. And and if anyone comes at you with a new wine, you say, "Look, fantastic! Four weeks time, our reviews coming up. Would love to taste it. Thank you so much." Just not worrying about reprinting the menu if you've got one dish that's not correct. Like, yeah. let's verb at the table. Let's give the waiter an in at the table to talk about, you know, two changes on the food. Maybe we've run out of one wine that's on our list and we've just got in a little, you know, something else. And if ever there was a time that people were going to be more forgiving, I think it's now, huh? Yeah, but it's also part of our um, Antipodean culture. Like, mm. it's like, I mean, it's not about it's not about being she'll be right, mate, Like because we're yeah. not she'll be right, mate. But we are like going, they're just being clear. Hey, this is not on, but this is on instead. And this is actually better. I just had it for lunch and it was bloody good, blah, yeah. blah. Yeah. And so not being so trying to make things perfect, 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 because sometimes you know especially at our level here at the grounds it's like people don't see that anyway and well that was actually going to be my next question because there's a lot of talk at the moment about obviously the fine dining sector and the higher end um, restaurants and there's so much talk about restaurants reconnecting being a little less arrogant being a little bit more or you know customer focused oh and, and you know this is something I hear over and over from people that are not in hospo that they feel intimidated going to um, some restaurants. Mm. And I think you're, you're mad if you can't see that. And um, 
I mean, I, I've got so much respect for, you know, got people like Amersfield and, and Sid Sarawat and these guys, are, they do something so well and I, I've, I've got so much love and respect for it. But having said that, you know, yes, I want to be smart casual, I think, you know, that's where I want to be um, because I enjoy cooking the food more. It's more approachable. People don't feel intimidated. And we have service that's welcoming and the manakitanga of New Zealand, the antipathy and hospitality where you're, you you make people feel comfortable from the moment you take their jacket. You still take their jacket. They don't drape it on the back of the chair, but yeah. they feel welcome. They feel comfortable. They're like, wow, look at this place. And you got, I want a front of house server, especially, server is the wrong word, like a, they're equal to a chef. It's so important, almost more important than a chef now. Like, you mm-hmm. know, I don't mean that the wrong way, but if the food's kind of average, like it doesn't really matter if you've got a really great waiter that you connect with and he or she can tell the story. But if the food's amazing and you have a really dull, kind of boring, snooty waiter, it's kind of like, man, yeah. guys, like, yeah. Okay, I hear you. Uh, Commercial Bay I want to talk about because I, I'm amazed you've still got all your hair, actually, because I know you've been waiting a very long time um, to open Ahi. So where's it, where's it at? When's it opening? Two and a half years with that place. And, you know, <laughs> but that landlord down there, Precinct Properties, have absolutely looked after us. And at times we could you know, we could walk away. Yeah, yeah. And we were like, man, we sh- probably should walk away. It must away. have been really excruciating when all of this happened. Yeah, but, you know, when, when you when you have a landlord like that, they don't even call us tenants. They call you clients, you know, and that says a lot right there. Mm. And um, it gives you – it inspires you. Yeah. And there's a lot of dickhead landlords out there at the moment. Uh, there's some good ones too, but, you know, I've had I've already had a bad experience and – I won't say where, but um, it's it's excruciating because I'm like, mate, like, protect your revenue. Mm. Like, I'm paying I'm paying your rent. Like, I'm paying it to you. Um, give me a break, mate. You know, like I've got no revenue at all, and you're still making me pay rent. Like, mm. get real. Mm. And so, when you're talking about excruciating pain, about the the, the the worst time you could ever imagine to open a place, but when you have a landlord like that, that's gone. Hey, you know what? If it's crap, we got your back. We're not going to kick you out. You know, pay your staff, pay your suppliers. Don't worry about us. But we want you there. We got your back. We believe in your concept. We believe in you. Then you're like, you're looking around and going, is this like actually you're just pinching yourself? We've done a little collab with Fisher and Paykel. They put in some amazing wine fridges. And we've had like a lot of people help us out. And right. when you see it, you'll be blown away. It's kind of like every, not everything I wanted, but you can never get everything. But are we over budget? Yes, we are. Are we two and a half years late? Yes, we are. Mm. When's when's opening now? Like I'm just going to say first first day of spring, like first of September. Around September. Okay. Yeah. On to New Zealand food story. Perfect timing while we're all starting to focus on the yeah. exploring our backyard. The first one went out on Saturday at five thirty on three. Exciting. Yeah, I mean, I've, everyone's excited. Um, for me, I'm a private person by nature. And just because I did MKR and stuff, but you know, I'm putting my kids on TV and stuff, you know, and also I'm, I'm kind of bearing my soul. And so it's quite a vulnerable space. Yeah. And, and you open yourself up to a lot of criticism. And so it's a very like nervous time. I mean, I'm not nervous about the show. I'm just nervous about kind of sharing my experiences with everybody. Mm. I mean, I don't really care what people think, but at the same time, when you call a show, ah, New Zealand food story, like you have a responsibility um, to make sure you're telling that story to the best of your ability. Yeah. And so that's what I'm nervous about. And, you know, the first show came out and 
um, it, it's good. It's 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 good. <laughs> um, it's hard watching yourself on TV. It's not easy. Um, and I and I and I, I don't mind. Don't you? That. You know what? You don't have double chins. You have nothing to worry about. Uh, it's not true. You know, like I think that. Um, I take it quite seriously, and and so what my kind of plans for the show is is that um, that at some point I pass the baton to someone else. Mm. Go, okay, because it's just through my eyes, and and you know there's great work done by by your good self at Cuisine and and by Eat New Zealand, and there's a lot of people doing a lot of things, and I'm just one small cog in the wheel of New Zealand food and who we are as New Zealanders through food and what is our cuisine and all these questions. So, how many episodes have you got? It's it's just eight, and um, we we might do a few more towards the end of the year if it goes well. Interesting. Yeah. Episode number two. What can we expect on the New Zealand food story? Um. So episode number two, where we go to. I mean, I'm a really bad Kiwi. I go to the I go to Fiordland for the first time. Um. And then we uh, interview the guru, Vaughan Mabi from Amersfield. <laughs> Gosh. And, um, the beautiful man that he is. And that He's... can go out at five thirty in the afternoon. Five thirty. Um, definitely with Vaughan, we put a few beeps in it. And um, but you know, you need a few beeps. You got to have a few beeps, mate. And that's and so that's pretty fun. Um, and so it's yeah, really about South Island and about um, what's going on down there, and just making sure that we, we we cover off the most remote part of New Zealand and probably the most productive part of New Zealand when it comes to seafood. Mm, absolutely. All right. We'll look. We'll look forward to that. And thank you for your time. And thank you for both conversations. Both are very, very different conversations. I think we're very different <laughs> people now than we were then, Ben. In such a thank short you, time. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Cuisine bites brought to you by Gaganow. Do not miss a New Zealand food story with Ben Bailey and the wealth of talented people you'll meet in this terrific program. It's produced by Mahi Tahi Media and a New Zealand food story airs Saturdays at 5.30pm on 3. If you missed episode one, you can watch it on demand. You can find us on social at Cuisine Magazine and online at cuisine.co.nz. Our glorious 200th issue of Cuisine is on shelves now, so please pick up a copy if you haven't already. A lot of love goes into every single page for you. Catch you back here next week.